Well, they say that there are two topics you're not supposed to bring up around Thanksgiving when the relatives gather. Religion and politics. Did anyone make it through your family gatherings without those tense moments? Nobody? And then you come to church and we hear the story of Jesus talking about taxes. Well, let me just reassure you, just put your mind to rest, that this story from Mark 12 is not ultimately about taxes. It's not ultimately about politics either. In fact, we will discover as we unpack it together that God is less interested in who we pay our taxes to and more interested in who we give our lives to. In fact, Jesus, the one we encounter in this story, is not a politician at all. The Pharisees and the Herodians who come and ask him that question, they acknowledge from the very beginning that he's no politician. Did you hear as Grace read it, verses 13 and 14, here's what it says. It says, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher... We know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. They recognize he's no politician. If he was a politician, he would be interested in what people think about him. They're really giving him a sort of backhanded compliment. They're saying, Jesus, obviously you don't care what people think about you because you've lost a lot of friends as you've been going around teaching. We know that you're no politician. So they say that to him, you're not swayed by appearances. And then they kind of mock him a little bit because they say, we know that you truly teach the way of God. So they're giving him a backhanded compliment, but it says it reveals their motive right here in the text. It says that they came to him to try to trap him to try to trap him in his talk. And they give him a yes or no question that he will fail no matter how he answers them. And they actually say it twice. They say to him, continuing on, should we, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? You see how they've set a trap for Jesus. Yes or no, Jesus. Now, if Jesus answers yes, he gets it wrong. If he answers no, he also gets it wrong. If he answers yes, he gets it wrong because Caesar was a bit of a dictator. And he was no politician either because he demanded allegiance from everybody in the kingdom. We know this because I want to show you this coin now. That This is what the coins looked like in Jesus' time. On one side of the coin, it's a picture of Tiberius Caesar. And you know what it says around his head? It says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Caesar Augustus. And on the other side of the coin, it's a picture of a high priest bringing peace. And it says that Tiberius Caesar is like that high priest who would bring peace to the land. So when people held these coins in their hand and they gave them as taxes, they were aligning themselves. They were saying, we are um, agreeing with what Tiberius Caesar says about himself, that he is the son of the divine Caesar Augustus and that he is the great high priest. So the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, should we pay taxes? And if he says yes, he's breaking what it says in the Bible. There shall be no other gods before me. 
But if he says no, he's also breaking one of the laws of the Bible that says we have to obey the laws of our authority. So they've come to trap him. Well, Jesus, in the way that he answers them, they've come to trap him, but we get to see that Jesus came to set them free. They wanted to trap him. He wanted to set them free because, as we've already said, Jesus is no politician, and he's also not like Tiberius Caesar. He's no dictator either. Jesus is not a politician. He's not a dictator. He would reveal to the people challenging him who he really was, that he was the true son of God, that he is the great high priest who had come to bring peace by dying in our place. Jesus is God's son. That's what he's going to reveal to these people. He wants to set them free, although they want to trap him. So let's read it together now and see how this plays out, how they try to trap him. He seeks to set them free by revealing who he truly is. Let's look at verse 15 together. After they've asked him this binary question, yes or no, Jesus, he doesn't take the bait. Verse 15, it says, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. I love that it says that in the text, because whenever I read anywhere in the Gospels where it says Jesus looks at something, I like to just kind of look at the story through his eyes. He says to them, give me one of those coins, toss me a denarius. And they toss it to him, and he holds it in his hand, he says, let me look at it. Well, let's just picture the story now, literally through Jesus' eyes. What's that like for him? looking at this coin where there's some pretender saying, I am the son of the divine. And then for him to flip it over and look at the other, other side where it says, I am the great high priest who will bring peace. How does that feel to the true son of God, the true high priest? Not only that, but knowing that all these people around him have bought into that. And they are following, they're worshiping some pretender claiming to be the Son of God. It says, let me look at it. And then he asks them a question. Remember, his goal is to set them free, not to trap them further. And he asks them a question. He says, whose likeness and whose inscription is this? They say Caesar's. So I picture him kind of flipping it back to them and say, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That word render is very simple in the Greek. It simply means to give it back. You remember that story of when Jesus is in his hometown in Nazareth and he reads from the Isaiah scroll and he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then it says he rolls up the scroll and gives it back to the attendant and sits down. It's the same word in Greek. He just gives it back. So Jesus instructs the people who are trying to trap him, render it to Caesar, just give it back to him. It's got his image and his likeness on it. But here comes the kicker. Jesus knew that the people who came to trap him knew their Bibles. 
And in the Bible, there are two key texts that they would have known. The first one is Genesis 1, verse 26. You should know this one, too. It's the creation of the world when God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're kind of having a conversation among themselves, and they say, let us make man in our image or in our likeness. So male and female, he created them. This is a text that Jesus' hearers would have known, that we bear God's likeness. We bear his image. We are made by God in his likeness. But there's another text that Jesus' hearers would have known that day as well. Jeremiah 31, verse 33. There are many examples of this in the Old Testament where God says that I will write, I will inscribe my law on the hearts of man. So the people coming to trap Jesus would have known that we bear his image and that we bear his inscription. So he holds that coin and he says to them, whose image and whose inscription is this? They say Caesar's. And he says, then give it to Caesar." But then here comes the punchline. He turns to them who bear God's image, who bear God's inscription, and he says, but give to God that which is God's. Let me just ask you this. Way there in the back, John Roth, can you hear me? John, whose image and whose inscription do you bear? Render yourself to God. Rocco. Nobody wants to make eye contact with me right now. (laughs) Whose image and whose inscription do you bear? Render yourself to God. Church, whose image and whose inscription do you bear? Render yourself to God. Do you hear what Jesus is saying in this text? It's not just about taxes. It's not even just about tithing. Somebody came up to me after the first service and they said, I always thought Jesus meant give whatever percentage the government is asking for taxes and give 10% to God. No, no, no. He's asking us for way more than 10% of our finances. We sang it in both those praise songs this morning. We said, Lord, I give you my heart. In that second song that Anna chose, I surrender. I surrender to you. My life It's in your hands. I surrender my rights. I surrender my pride. Those are amazing lyrics. This is hard to do. We hear God saying, render yourself, give yourself. You bear my image. You bear my inscription. You belong to me. Now, render yourself to me. We might even make agreement with that. We say, yes, I give myself to you, but it's so much harder to do. One of my favorite things as a pastor is teaching confirmation class. I love just gathering with 7th and 8th graders, talking about life, talking about God, talking about ourselves. And some of you know this because your kids have gone through. On day one of confirmation class, I teach the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer number one. Question and answer number one of the Heidelberg Catechism sounds like this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? My only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. 
What is my only comfort in life and in death? My only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. If the students are really paying attention in confirmation class, this is a little bit like that needle coming off the record, because everything they've been taught up until that point, by schools, by teachers, by sometimes by parents, by what's on their television uh, screens, is pretty much the opposite. It's you belong to nobody but yourself. You control your own destiny. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Use your own talents and skills. You can conquer the world. You belong to yourself. Then they come to my class. (laughs) And I say, actually, (laughs) you don't belong to yourself. You belong to the one who created you. You belong to the one whose image and whose inscription you bear. And that's not a terrifying thought. That's your only comfort in life and in death. You know, as a pastor, I get to sit by the deathbeds of various people. And I know the people who know this truth. That their only comfort in life and in death is that their lives, both here on earth and eternally, are in the hands of their Creator. You know how I know that? Because they're not afraid as they're dying. They're comforted. They know where they're going. You bear his image. You bear his inscription. Render your life to him. Now, I know how this goes. I think right now, all of us are finding some kind of agreement with this amazing truth from Scripture where Jesus says, give yourself to me. But I also know from personal experience that when we leave this room, we go out those doors, get into our cars, go home, go to our workplace, our school, at least for me, I'll speak for myself, it's pretty easy to slip right back into self-ownership, self-destiny creating. I forget. I forget that he asks me to render my life, to give it to him, that it's already in his hands. I sort of hop into the steering wheel. I kick him off the throne, and I sit on it myself, and I say, I'm actually in charge of my life. And then I get anxious. I forget. Does that happen to you? Well, God knows. God knows that even though he created us, Even though he put his image and his inscription on our hearts, he knows that because of sin, we stubbornly white-knuckle it back. And we take it back into our own grip. Get ready, because here comes the gospel. He knows we're going to do that. So what has he done for us? He's rendered himself to us. That's what God did in sending Jesus to this earth to the cross, knowing we would never render ourselves fully to him. So he said, I love them so much. I want them to be with me for all of eternity. So I will render myself. I will give myself. I will lay down my own life for the sake of those who refuse to give me their lives. That's what Jesus did when he came and died on the cross. He rendered himself to us. So when he asks us this morning, I sense that he is by the presence of his Holy Spirit, when he asks us to render ourselves to him, it's in the freedom of knowing he's already done it for us. He's already given himself to us. So it's not some kind of obligatory thing. It's not like he'll condemn us when we don't. It's it's in freedom. He came to set us free. 
so that we would give our lives back to him. That's what we do when we come to the communion table. Every week, week after week, service after service, we preach God's word, and then we go right to the table. Why do we do that? Because week after week, we get challenged, we get instructed by God to do things from this word, and we say, yes, Lord, I I will do that. I will make that change. I will do that thing. But then we go right to the table acknowledging that we fail to give our lives to him week after week, and we receive the gift of his life to us. We break the bread. We pour the cup because he's rendered his life to us, and that is our only hope. There's this amazing sentence in Psalm 116, and it summarizes this truth, this coming to the table of giving our lives to him who gave his life to us. The psalmist David asks this question. He says, what shall I render to God for all his benefits to me? He's asking the question, what could I ever give back to God for the fact that he's given himself to me? And he says something very interesting. He says, I'll lift up the cup of salvation and I'll call on the name of the Lord and I'll pay my vows in the presence of all his people. How did David know that he's painting a perfect picture of of what the communion table is all about? We come to the table and we say, what could we possibly render? What could we give him? We lift up the cup of salvation. We remember that he's given it all for us. He spilled his blood for us. So we will call on his name, not our own. We will call on his name. And in the presence of these people, God's church will pay our vows. What is our vows? It's our lives. It's our commitment to him. You know, something else very special happens right here several times a year. People get married. That, too, is a picture of our relationship with God, what we celebrate when we come to this table. Because in marriage, it's two parties giving their lives to each other, forsaking all others, they say. I give my life to you. If you're married, you just maybe need a reminder of that this morning. That's your job as a husband, it's your job as a wife to render yourself to the other. Not to fight for your own rights, your own pride, but to lay down your life like Jesus has done for us. When we do that well, husbands, wives, we reflect the amazing love of Jesus Christ who rendered himself to us and asks us to give our lives back to him. Jesus is no politician. He's not a dictator. He's the true son of God, the true high priest who came and died on the cross and brought us peace. And he asks us very simply again today to give our lives back to him. Amen.